0: Before we uh, look at Luke 9, I want you to look at the 14th chapter of Luke, because I need to make some introductory comments from Luke's 14th chapter. And the reason is because when I was, a, when I was first a Christian, one of the books that I read early on was a book by F.F. F. Bruce, it's little tiny studies, <clears throat> the title of which is The Hard Sayings of Jesus. The hard sayings of Jesus. The things that Jesus says, which when you read them, uh, immediately offend our sensibilities. They shock us. We, we did, they just don't seem to make sense on the surface. Sometimes seem contradictory, and other times it's just an offense to the, the gravitation of humanity in our hearts. And in Luke 14, we find one of these statements. And the book, by the way, is still in print. You can get F.F. F. Bruce's Books, hard sayings of Jesus, there are several volumes where he just kind of takes two or three pages and deals with all these difficult and very thorny issues uh, in Scripture, particularly statements made by Jesus in, in this particular volume. In Luke 14, notice what Jesus says in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, it again, just immediately hits you, you read it, it's stark, it's shocking, it, it, in, in a real sense, is offensive to our human sensibilities. What are you talking about? Surely he can't mean a real actual hate human to human because James 4 tells us that it ought not to be that we... We are made in the image of God, all of us together, and yet we curse one another. That should not be. If we're made in the image of God, we're peers. You get loved because you're human by other humans. That's how it ought to be. And if you're a Christian, then you love human beings. Even those that do wrong to you, you, you're called to love even your enemies. So he can't mean, I want you to have an actual hate for one another, a disdain for other people. In fact, Matthew records perhaps this same time, but maybe another time when Jesus made a similar statement, but it was recorded in such a way that gives us an understanding of what Jesus is saying in Luke 14. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 37, this is what Jesus said. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There it is. There's what Jesus means when he makes this hard statement. If you want to follow after me, you must hate your family and even your own life and take up your cross daily and follow me. What does he mean? There can be no obstacle of any higher affection or allegiance. None. No rivals to Christ. Now, turn to Luke 9, and that very issue comes to the forefront in the ninth chapter of Luke in the last few verses which we have reached in our study, and in this section, again, the same theme or similar theme, but here's how it comes to us. It comes to us in three conversations, three little interchanges that Luke records that happened to Jesus, maybe on the same day, maybe in the same hour, we don't know. But he records them here to raise this same issue. When you say you follow Christ, what is your motive are you crafting a Jesus after your own making and therefore you think you follow Christ, but you don't? Are you inventing a way to follow Jesus where you get to have him, a little bit of him, and a whole lot of the other things that, that you want? But he isn't calling for that. In these conversations that take place in this last section of Luke's chapter 9, Jesus is testing the motives of the heart. Why? Because he's going to define for us the core of what it means to genuinely be a Christian and therefore genuinely faithfully follow Christ. And so with each of these brief interactions, every one of the most basic human desires is confronted. The most basic things that are instinctive to us, that we love, the things that could steal the gospel right out of our hands, the things that could rob us from truly following Christ, they're confronted right here in these three little interchanges we love ease and comfort that's going to get confronted we love attaching ourselves to tangible securities earthly securities things we can see touch taste feel that's confronted here we love to imagine that we can add jesus to a lot of the things we already obsess over and bow down to that gets confronted here Your devotion, your loyalties get confronted here. The fact that you don't really want to be uncomfortable and the gospel could could make life uncomfortable, that gets addressed here. The Lord doesn't pull any punches. He tests motives. People come to Him all the time. I want to follow you. Really? You want to follow me? Here's the deal. Oh, I want to serve you. Really? You want to serve me? Here's what I want you to do. Here's what I'm calling you to do. Here's what I'm calling you to believe. You don't get to invent this on your own. You you say one thing, I'm going to test it, he says. I'm going to put it to the test to know if there's a problem an obstacle to me being your highest affection. Jesus indicates in these verses that following him is costly. Follow along as I read verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But that person said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead a strange statement. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, well, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Man, there's some hard sayings in there. Hard sayings, difficult things, all of which culminate in one main point following Christ is not a hobby. It's not a vacation. It's not casual. It's not a casual interest. It's not an acquaintance. It isn't your life with Jesus attached to it. It is costly. Let's just look at this, and and each of these interactions, we'll just sort of give it a a particular principle label. Three interactions, three principles today about what it means to follow Christ. The first interaction, Jesus is teaching this, that following him is a life without guaranteed ease. It is a life without guaranteed ease. In fact, we could restate it this way. If you're going to follow Christ... You will have a dispossessed life to a large degree, maybe even to the ultimate degree, and be martyred. We don't know. But it will be a dispossessed life. That is to say, you won't have the things that people have and always have had in this life. You won't have them. You have some of them, but there's no guarantee of them. Following Christ means you say, okay, I don't have any guarantee. It's all right. It's all right. That's what it means to follow Christ. Did this guy find that when he makes this claim, did he find in Jesus' response that there was a testing of his own motive? Hey, why do you think you're going to be able to go wherever Jesus calls you to go? Now, at first glance, it's amazing. The guy says in verse 57, I will follow you Wherever you go, I mean, look, this is this is the kind of person churches typically want—a warm body who just lays it all on the line right up front. I'll take, I'll go wherever you want to go. I'll do whatever ministry you want. This seems like the the perfect candidate to hire. Give him a lot of tasks in the church. His commitment seems really sound. He, he sounds a little bit, you know, like Ruth to Naomi. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. He sounds a little like Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He sounds like Isaiah when Isaiah was cleansed and called as a prophet and the Lord said, who am I going to send? And Isaiah said, here am I. Send me. I mean, how many missions, conferences have been opened up on Isaiah 6? Send me. And everybody goes, yes. And then somebody says, will you go to this country? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, the Lord doesn't want me to go there. I don't feel led to go there. This guy sounds like the real deal. Matthew's gospel tells us that this this would-be promise keeper is a scribe. What? He's got theology too? I mean, he's the theologian in Israel. He's a scribe. He's a teacher. He's dedicated. He's disciplined. He knows doctrine. Man, this guy's already trained. Sign him up. Everything about this scenario appears as though Jesus has just crossed paths with the one of the most, you know, likely to succeed kind of guys. He's the real deal. He's already religiously committed, devoted theologian, humbly offering his life to the service of Christ for the sake of gospel outreach. Beloved, this is precisely the kind of thing we, we go for when we look at a self-starter, right? I mean, the guy's got it all. He'll be able to argue the theological issues really clearly. He's got a sharp theological mind. He'll be clear. He vows to be out in front. I'll go wherever. Man, you you want all the younger timid people to be in this guy's wake. But his promise needs to be tested. People say they want to be Christians all the time, and yet when it costs them something, didn't we see that in Luke chapter 8 with the superficial soil and seed went on the rocky soil and what happened? The roots went down, they were a little bit shallow. It was an initial response, it sprouted up, excited, yeah, they're in the gospel. And then what happened? Matthew 8 says, Jesus explained the parable this way, when temptation came in, it exposed that the roots did not go down and hold. It was a superficial response. It was Jesus plus whatever I want. It was, man, I, I don't mind Jesus, but I I can't give up the things of this life that make me comfortable. People claim it all the time. And then there are believers who, if they make bold claims. I'm going to go here, go do this. But then you start telling them what the cost is going to be and they peel off. You say, was that this guy? Well, Notice Jesus' response. He says, in just honing in on his his comparative line, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Look at the contrast. I'll go wherever you call me to go. I have nowhere. Look at the contrast. I'll go wherever? Really? Will you, will you go nowhere? Because I don't have anywhere. We're, we're going, but there's no comfort involved. There's no ease involved. See, why would Jesus say this? Because Jesus knows the human heart, and he's testing the motive whether or not this man thought that following Christ would cost nothing of his earthly comforts. In fact, it's interesting. You might miss it in verse 57, but it says, as they were going along the road. It's a verb that means while they're in the journey, this guy comes along, saddles up alongside. So, we could assume, as a scribe, he's thinking, all right, I've seen this guy, he draws big crowds. I'm a teacher. Maybe when he goes off to the mountain to pray, he could tap me and I'd come in, be a stand-in for the big crowd. I could do this. I got this. I'm impressed with this guy's ability to draw a crowd. I'm impressed with this guy's miracles and his power. And since I'm a scribe, maybe this guy saw himself as equal with even the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, worthy of a teaching slot. You know, when I was training guys in seminary before coming here, these young guys would come in, hey, pastor, I just want to get around you, just want to serve, just just give me any job to do, I just want to see how inner workings of ministry work. I'd say, okay, so here you go, and I'd give them this task that's largely administrative, rather mundane, kind of everyday routine, behind the scenes, total obscurity, no recognition. And say, so, you know, get that done and bring it back to me. Three months go by, I don't see them. So I see them. Uh, so how's, how's it going on that that assignment? Because we, we really need that for, for organizing these Bible studies. We really need that. And well, you know, I got kind of busy. You know, you know, well, we still need it. Okay, all right, I'll get on that. Yeah, just get back to me. And and then the you know the grace vine in the church. We call it the grace vine, the gossip chain. Uh, when it's healthy, it's moving fast and. I would hear that this guy went to some other staff guy, and he didn't tell him that I gave him a job to do when he came to me and said he wanted to serve, he just went to that guy and said, hey, you gotta, I'm ready to serve, just want to serve you. No, no, you you just want to pick and choose what you want to do. You, you want to teach, you want prominence, you want Jesus to bring you ministry on your terms, you, You want church life to do what it wants with you and your reputation and the things that you love. You want to bring your comfort and ease and your reputation and all that rather than obscurity and difficulty and dispossession. You want to bring all of what you want and say, Jesus, I'm laying it before you. Looks pretty good. You could probably use this. Perhaps a scribe saddling up to Jesus' ministry, that's the deal here. And it's why Jesus has to test him Really? You'll go wherever I go? Really? Well, then know this. I'm on a journey, not to a resort and spa. I'm on a journey, and the, the typical, everyday, common grace comforts of life will not be a part of it. Maybe a little bit here and there. Jesus held up at Peter's home in Capernaum, sometimes over at Bethany with Lazarus and the family, but basically on his way, on the journey. And the end, the stop, will be Jerusalem. And he just told the disciples not too many days earlier, they're going to kill me. You'll follow me wherever I, I go. Look, the animal kingdom lives better than me. That's what he says. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man? I don't have that. I mean, Jesus makes this great contrast, you know, the seven hills of Israel crawling with foxes, they get it. They get the analogy. Birds everywhere, look, they have nests. The animal world, as brutal as it sometimes is, enjoys the most basic comfort of our existence, a place to get away from the vulnerability of the day and rest even the animals have that but the son of man don't forget Jesus loves that title it's a favorite title the son of man the Messiah the anointed one God's beloved the creator of the universe who created the foxes and the holes and gave the birds their nests I've got, I got, I got nowhere I don't have a place I don't have the ease and comfort of knowing that it's going to be there at the end of every day I don't have that. You want to follow me, you have to know that it is a life without those guaranteed things. Because if the Son of Man wasn't guaranteed them, the shepherd wasn't guaranteed them, in order to lay his life down, then we are not guaranteed them. And he makes it very clear, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why? Because everywhere he goes, hostility increases... He gets rejected. The towns and villages which should be receiving him and saying, hey, would you, would you be the permanent rabbi in our town, the savior of our village? Would you do that? He doesn't get that. Nobody offers their home as a permanent place to stay. It's too much trouble. He causes too much hassle. There's so much drama that follows him. You bring Jesus into your house. You bring the city officials on your head. Fast forward to your context. You claim Jesus and follow Christ Increasing this in this culture. It gets difficult. So what's it going to be? Is temptation going to come in and we're going to show that the roots went shallow for you because you jumped on the Jesus bandwagon? Why? Because you could add him to all of the ease and comfort that he gives you in common grace to which you are attached and won't let go. There's the issue right there. That is what Jesus is doing here. There's no guarantee. Oh, sure, he gives you all kinds of common grace things. Absolutely. And in particular seasons of life, maybe even for generations, all of that comes at you, wonderfully so. But do you see that as Christianity? Do you see that as what it means to follow the Savior? all the niceties that in His kindness He's allowed us to have? Do you take all those common graces and turn them into guilt-edged guarantees that if you start to lose those things, then somehow following Jesus has to change? Look, that's happening in the church, in our culture, that because all of that is coming against our ease and our comforts that we've enjoyed, we have been tempted... And at times have actually succumbed to the temptation to change Jesus and give him a different Saviour. It's a problem. This is what's in our hearts. I love my ease and comfort. I love it. And yet by the mercies of God we're told to lay our life down as a living sacrifice. We may not have to be martyred, but everything else has to be laid on the altar, including our very life, and say, Lord, if you want to take it, take it. He may not remove it all. He may not ask for every single comfort, but He gives us those seasons of the most wonderful things in His common grace. None of them, none of them are guaranteed. You follow Jesus. Hostility is going to rise and you will be living a dispossessed life. You just have to, it may not look like a dispossessed life yet, but it is a dispossessed life. This world's not your home. You're a citizen. All of those passages sort of come together in this one principle. This is a life of daily dying to first loves. We can simplify this into the contrast between temporal and eternal rest. You want to rest here? You want to get your ease and comfort here so that you threaten your eternal rest? Jesus says, Don't do that. Don't tell me you'll follow me wherever you're going to go unless you realize it's a dispossessed life and that's the rest you're looking for, not here. Not here. Are you willing to let go of everything you love about your comfort and your ease? Are you willing to be dispossessed by the world? Are you willing to live for our eternal rest instead of trying to add a little of Jesus to the love of the earth that you have in your heart? Are you willing to forfeit what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose? The obstacle to this guy's faith, this guy here, the obstacle was a dishonest heart. He boasted of devotion to the gospel, but it was a gospel that wouldn't demand that he lay his life down and his love of ease set aside. He might have been tempted to ask, hey, why do we have to be so reproached by the world? I mean, Lord, can't you get this gospel thing done without us having to endure so much reproach? Embarrassment? Doesn't God want me to enjoy good health and nice retirement and all the things we've worked so hard to earn doesn't he want that can't we just follow Jesus without having to go through all this struggle Jesus said look no disciple is above what his master that's the first conversation the second one comes in verse 59 he said to another follow me But he said, Lord, permit me first to go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. So Jesus teaches in the first interchange that following him is a life without guaranteed ease. In this interchange, he teaches that following him is a life without concerned about souls not about earthly security about souls not about earthly heritage about souls in eternity it's a concern not about the legacy of your family attachments to your estate it's not a concern about land and people and heritage and legacies on earth it's about souls in eternity I was talking to a young family the other day about their little ones and it, it just, the conversation took me back to when I was raising my little kids. And, you know, I thought, what what's going to happen if I attach myself to, to the earthly heritage and legacy of estates and, and family relationships that aren't saved and connect myself to those things, and those things become most important to me? What am I going to do? Then when my kids grow up, I'm going to pass to them... A powerless message, a message about the earthly inheritances that I can pass to them, none of which is inherently sinful, but that will be far more important than their soul. In fact, at some point, I'm going to be tempted to compromise. Why? Because earthly estates and all those inheritances and all those family matters and all those legacy issues take control of your heart because they're tangible. They seem more about fulfillment and security here and that's what you taste most often and so that's what you think the following Jesus is about he has to add himself to that. And so if the first conversation was a face off between temporal rest and eternal rest this this interaction is the squaring off of earthly security with divine security. That's what this is right here. Earthly security versus divine security. Notice the contrast. Permit me to go. And, and he uses a verb, the guy does, he uses a verb that says, give me an opportunity. Grant me the permission to go. That's why some of your translations say, grant permission. Permit me. But you know what Jesus does in his answer? He uses a different verb that says, let go. Release them to do whatever they are going to do. Let them go. So the contrast is, the guy's saying, permit me to go do this. Jesus says, allow or let go of and as for you you go do this permit me first to go home no you let the the unbeliever do what what they normally do and we'll take care of you proclaim the kingdom you go now so we know at least initially that this guy's request has strings attached to it now you look at the text and you're like wait a minute this doesn't seem like a big deal permit me first to go and bury my father I mean that doesn't seem like a problem In fact, for the Jews, that was part of their duty. It came out of the law of God and it was rooted in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother. We saw that in our study of Genesis. Man, when a patriarch died, what did the sons do? It didn't matter how estranged they were, how many bad things they did, how fragmented the family was. When the father died, he was the patriarch. The estate was going to get passed. God's people, all that was going to get passed. And the boys and the daughters came back, and the the firstborn took care of the responsibilities, and they went back to where the grave was bought, and they buried them with respect and dignity and all those things. It was part of their law. It was not to be denied in terms of a responsibility. And there were specifics, according to Leviticus 21, for how it was to be done, even with family members. We know from this request that the man's father hasn't recently died or he'd be back there with the family. His dad hasn't died. We don't know that his father's sick. He's just saying, look, the estate hasn't passed to me yet. There's something in this guy's heart beyond the mere dignity of family honor. We know that because of Jesus' answer. Verse 60, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, that's emphatic in the original, the pronoun, as for you, you go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God so now you see what the issue is Jesus is testing his heart with respect to his attachment to earthly passing of inheritances and the estate and family legacy and heritage and Jesus is saying is that noble thing more important than souls that's what I'm interested in had Jesus not replied like that we wouldn't know this guy's motives but Jesus is testing him It is a noble thing to want to take care of family responsibilities. But what about the kingdom? Is this going to rob you of what I've called you to do, and that is to be concerned with souls? Is the estate going to get in the way of telling your family members the gospel? Look, I know you have unbelieving family members. I know you'd like to keep those connections. I know that we don't like earthly families fragmented. Sometimes God gives us wonderful generations together. Even believer and unbeliever, you can have lots of gospel opportunity. But what happens when those two collide? I have a brother who doesn't know the Lord. I, I, I don't want that. I don't want the estranged relationship. I don't. But the gospel and souls matter ultimately. Sometimes I have to speak the truth in love. And it separates a family, doesn't it? It separates a legacy, separates a heritage, separates an estate, separates inheritance, separates all of those things. Homes, generations. Notice Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Well, he can't mean that the guy is free to walk away from a sacred duty or those things... You know, he's not saying those things don't matter, that people are dead. Not at all. It must mean here that he's saying, look, if, if they're unbelievers, they're spiritually dead, and they're going to take care of those family things. You must check your heart. You're driven by a concern for souls, not... Whether the estate passes to you properly and you get all the goods and and things coming to you, you know how that is. You have Christians who have family members that are unbelievers and the parents die and the estate goes into some sort of dispute and what happens? Christians get yanked in to this ugly thing over resources and land and titles and deeds and, and all those family relationships just get blown apart and the Christian gets dragged into it. It's difficult. And listen, where there is a huge legacy of title and deed and resource, it gets even more challenging as to whether you're going to be concerned about souls or not. Look, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that sometimes your generations that come after you won't squander what you've spent your lifetime earning. But for the most part, typically that's life. You earn it, you hand it to the next generation, they squander it. That's how it is, Solomon said. And he was the wealthiest guy on earth. earth. That's life. Christians are to have their hearts tested. Those things might be noble, maybe even a way to keep the family talking and relationships open, but souls matter most, which means the gospel matters most, which means telling people the truth and love matters most. This guy says, oh, I'm willing to follow you, Jesus, but... After I take care of all that. Oh, really? What do you really want out of this? You want the land? You want the estate? You want it passed to you because you're the firstborn? You want the resources and the inheritance? You know how people are. Oh, how that guy can serve the gospel if he just come to Christ with all his money. Really? Why doesn't he just come to Christ regardless of whether all that's there? Your Motives can't be pure. You can't serve God and inheritances and God and land and God and titles and God and family heritage, you can't do it you must love Christ more than those things so Jesus tests him he tests this guy what's his security in the spiritually dead the family members, they're going to respect those that pass away, they're going to work on the arrangements they're going to take care of their inheritance, they're going to get involved in all those battles you, he says to this guy, you must not be concerned about your slice of the pie. You must remember that earthly estates are nothing compared to eternal souls. That's the issue. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Stop hanging on to the passing kingdoms of men. Of course you can take care of those family members that pass away, and you should, but how often does that turn into some ugly battle over heirlooms? a life of following Christ is all about souls. That's what it's about. Ask yourself this question. Has there been any any relationship in your life associated with whatever you're connected to, whatever family, whatever place, whatever plot of land, whatever place in the country, whatever you're connected to, have there been any times in those scenarios where you have not concerned yourself with a soul because you were afraid it might separate you from all those other things. Anytime. Anytime where you tempered the gospel. Anytime where you tempered your love for their soul. Anytime where your prayer life went dry over those, but, but boy, your interest in the money didn't. Following Christ is a life without guaranteed ease and it's a life... Concerned about souls. The final interaction that you see here comes in verse 61. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. That seems reasonable. Come on. I mean, even when Elijah passed the prophetic mantle to Elisha and put the coat on him, he said, can I go say goodbye to my family? Sure, go ahead. I'm going to be a prophet now. It doesn't, I don't know what this means, but God's called me to go speak to the disobedient people of Israel. It could cost me my life. I just want to say goodbye to you. Go ahead. You let him do it. So what is the problem here? Let me, let me go say goodbye to those at home. I'll follow you, Jesus. I mean, this sounds like missions, doesn't it? Let's have a service for the guy. don't we? Don't we allow missionaries to say goodbye to their loved ones, hug their neck, kiss them? What's the problem here? Jesus puts him to the test. Look at verse 62. No one after putting his hand to the plow, and here it is, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So you know that he's talking about a heart that isn't fit for the kingdom because it looks back. This is not, I want to go home and hug the necks of family members. This is someone who says, I'll follow you, but first let me go there And and take care of all of those relationships. Let them know. Ask them, should I be doing this? Get their advice. Get their counsel. Can I drag some of my old ethics from the old life into this new life with Jesus? Can I grab some of my old friends? Because I don't want to be alone in it and lose all of them. Can I grab some of my old language, my old haunts, old places, old loves? Can I grab some of that and bring it with me? Jesus, you're telling me to separate from all that? Really? You're telling me to follow you the way you want me to follow you, your ethics? Well, that could alienate. That could alienate me from from my old life. And some of my old life I really liked. Some of my old life was fun. You're asking me to follow you and sacrifice some of the old haunts and old ethics and old way I did things? even old friends, even my parents maybe. Listen to one commentator. This request sounds reasonable and innocent, but when this man gets back among his people and tells them of his intention to follow Jesus and starts to bid them all farewell, will he be able to resist their pleading to stay with them and to give up Jesus? Has that been a struggle for you as a Christian with unbelieving family members? How difficult would it be if you've never put your faith in Christ initially and you get around all these Christians here at Grace Emmanuel? and you're like, man, I, I, this is a cool crowd. I really like these group of people. A bit nerdy here and there, but cool and they love Jesus and they're nice to me and they're moral I mean I'm so tired of living the life I used to live I'm just sick of the guilt they make me feel good I sing those songs I feel good I'm going to go home and tell my parents that I'm going to go to this church and follow Jesus and what happens they start wearing you out what? you're going to go into that? you're in a cult oh some of you have heard that I don't want to be with you when you're doing it. You're leaving us? You're you're going to leave your family. You're cutting us off. You're doing this. Are you going to be able to withstand that? Jesus says to this guy. All honor to friendship and love, but humanly noble affections may prevent us from entering the kingdom. That's right. And if you're a Christian, you already know how difficult it is to say what needs to be said and let the chips fall. That's what Jesus meant, full circle, Matthew 10, 37. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. The man says he's willing to follow Jesus, but he sets a condition. It's a condition on his service. And Jesus says, look, you can't plow a straight furrow. He just picks up that great farming language, even all the way back to the prophet Elijah. You can't plow a straight furrow while looking behind you. And just as you can't plow a straight furrow while looking behind you, so you should not imagine that you could bear fruit for the gospel while you still love your old life, long for your old life, and try to drag your old life with you. You can't do it. Looking back is the imagery here. Looking back with longing, looking back wishing, looking back with regret that you gotta let it go. That's what he means. It's the image of someone who's trying to go forward with the task that demands wholehearted loyalty, wholehearted focus, devotion, to be faithful. But you're also ruled by desires to have the things that you had to set aside in the first place. And you regret having set them aside. Jesus says, no. The kingdom of God demands unrivaled devotion. No higher allegiance than Christ." Paul said man I used to trust in my religion my keeping of the law and when I met Christ it was all trash to me the rest of that stuff was trash to me you can't be a true follower of Christ and still be devoted to your non-Christian friends ethics you can't be devoted to your old haunts and your old passions when you worship Christ you remove the other idols in the room. You don't bow down and worship Christ while bowing at the feet of all the other idols and cluttering them around Him just because you refuse to repent of them. So, Jesus says in three little conversations, hey, you say you want to go wherever, you, wherever I want you to go? Then here's the deal. It's a life without comfort. Guaranteed. Oh, sure, you're comfortable right now you got some of the comforts of the common grace of God. Are you attached to them? Do you love them? Do you anchor yourself to them? Do you think that that's really what life is all about? Test yourself. Anytime the gospel makes life uncomfortable and the reproach of Christ makes you uneasy, do you thank God for that, and does that motivate you to greater service? Test your heart. If you're here and you don't know Christ and you say, I want to follow him, but you think it's about adding Jesus to what you brought in the door, Jesus says, it isn't going to be. You can't have me in those things. And what about souls? You parents, your grandparents, is it about souls or being a friend to your kids? Is it about souls or watching your kids have all the wonderful things that this earth has to offer and achieving those great things so you can put trophy cases on your mantle and when you invite friends over, you go, that's my son, that's my daughter, all that stuff. Oh, We love to see our kids achieve. That's normal. That's human. Do you worship those things? Are you attached to them? Will you let go of them? What if God takes your child off to the mission field? Are you going to let them go for the sake of the gospel? Are you going to pledge their head to heaven for the gospel? And what about your own heart? Are there rivals? Mm. Following Christ is not a hobby, beloved. Knowing Christ is not the addition of Jesus to all the things that you used to worship. It's repentance, faith exclusively in Him. And if you already know Christ, following Him means don't make empty boasts or claims, really test your motives. You're not going to have a place to lay your head. It is about souls. So proclaim the kingdom. Don't look back. Don't look back. Don't look back with longing. Just repent of those things. Get rid of them. And see what God will do. See what he does with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your love, your concern for your people, how you give us such clear truth. So glad Luke recorded this. I'm so glad Matthew clarified some things. So thrilled that you challenge our hearts again and again. And we do want to follow you wherever you call us to go, but sometimes our life is just filled with distractions and old loves and pathetic shallowness. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us so that we might grow in these things. Don't let us look back. Oh, How often we've reached out to, to grab vanities we used to love, knowing that they're empty, but we reach out for them. How foolish. Lord, forgive us for that and strengthen us in, in what it really means to devote our hearts to you fully. And help our unbelief. Help us not to find our security and things in this life. You tell us not to. Just keep us from it. We are so easily attached. And we will pass that foolishness on to our children if we don't think about souls first. Souls are the only thing that go into eternity. Everything else just burns up. So help us to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness and to give up what we cannot keep so that we might have permanently in eternity that which we cannot lose. May we follow you like that, we pray in your name. Amen.